I would like to read something from uh, C.S. Lewis's last battle, the seventh and last book of the uh, Narnia tales. That's right at the end of the book when uh, the children enter the stable. They say farewell to Shadowlands, and uh, they step into a new world, step through the door of the stable into a brand new world where good King Aslan reigns supreme and where everything is farther up and further in. And uh, King Tyrion looks through a hole in the door and he sees the old world, the darkness of Lantern Waste where he had fought his last battle. And then he looked around and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead, the grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction, and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, the inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And uh, Lewis here, of course, is referring to the incarnation. That, uh, that stable that the shepherds found, where they found the infant Jesus, who, as the poet puts it, was God contracted to a span. The infinite became infinitesimally small, and that very small place became the very center of the universe. All of that came about as a result of what we refer to as the virgin birth, or more properly, the virgin conception. And uh, in order to uh, understand that concept, I'd like to have you look at two verses, two passages in the gospel. The first is found in Luke chapter 1, and the second in Matthew chapter 1. There are two annunciations, one to Mary and one to Joseph. Dr. Luke, who apparently was intrigued by this unique birth, interviewed uh, Mary, and it was from her that he gained his understanding of this event. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. In her sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And we've seen how important that line of descent is. To David, it was promised that his son would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And now we come to this man, Joseph, who is the last of that line. And... Uh, uh, the virgin's name, we're told, his wife, his bride-to-be, was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, we've run across that um, formula before, the Lord is with you. We saw it a few months ago when we were studying the book of Judges. This was the way in which the angel introduced himself to Gideon when he told him, The Lord is with you. And it signals some special task that God has for the person that's addressed. 
Mary, we were told, was greatly troubled at his words because she wondered what service she could perform. Just a very young woman, uh, a freshman in high school, about that age, uh, certainly someone obscure, unknown, and she wondered what God would want with her. Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end, and you will... Pick up echoes of the promise to David that we studied some weeks ago in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised that one of David's sons would sit on the throne of Jacob, a throne of Israel, the house of Jacob, forever. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. It's uh, quite clear from this passage that Mary was unaware that the Messiah was to be born through a virgin. That was something new to her. How can this be? She said. I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing, nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Her response is so matter-of-fact, we uh, miss some of the heroism of her response because uh, this meant that Mary lived the rest of her life under a a cloud. The uh, people of her day did not expect Messiah to be born of a virgin. This was something new, as we shall see. They didn't understand They believed from the very beginning that Jesus was born out of wedlock. She carried this opprobrium with her to the end of her days. This was one of the swords, I think, that uh, was thrust through her heart, this misunderstanding. And our Lord bore it as well. Uh, There's one occasion when he was in debate with the Pharisees, and they were on the losing end of the argument. And as is often the case when we're losing an argument, we attack the person that... uh, that's, that's winning the argument, and they said to him, well, at least we're not born of fornication with the implication you are. They didn't understand, you see. How can a, can a virgin, someone who's had no sexual experience, as Mary puts it here, someone who has never known a man, how can that person give birth to a human being? Well, that's a... That's a tough one. Theologians have struggled with that one, and they've tried to come up with an answer. But uh, the simplest answer is the one that, uh, that the angel himself gives, the angel Gabriel to Mary with God. Nothing is impossible. And as a sign that nothing is impossible, he tells Mary that her, her kinswoman, Elizabeth, is going to have a child too. And uh, Elizabeth was uh, elderly, and she was past the age of childbearing, and she was barren. And yet God touched her womb, and a child was conceived. The child we know is John the Baptist. You see, it takes God in any case to, uh, to create conception. Uh, no woman has a child without God. No uh, mare has a, has a colt without God. No uh, doe has a fawn 
without God. It takes God to open the womb and create a conception. The difference in this conception is that, as one poet put, put it, God took off the glove of nature and he touched Mary's womb with his naked hand and the child that was conceived was himself. You see, that's, that's what the virgin birth means. It means that God himself was the father of the child. Mary, uh, there was no human father. Joseph was not the father of this child. Mary was the mother. Joseph was not the father. God was the father. And uh, at this point, any sort of clinical explanation fails us and seems utterly, totally inappropriate. And the myths that we're so often told, uh, often, uh, we're often told, uh, coincide so closely with this event, have nothing to do with the virgin birth. The notion of Pallas springing from the forehead of Zeus and the stories that we're told of God's cohabiting with human women are so crass and coarse that by comparison they, they pale, they fail us. All we can say is that with God, everything is possible. Nothing is impossible. We don't know how he did it, but we know that he touched Elizabeth's barren womb and a child was conceived and he touched the womb of Mary and a new being, a new man came into the world who was the Son of God, the very likeness of God, God himself incarnate, God in flesh. Now let's look at Matthew's description of the virgin birth. Matthew must have interviewed Joseph because this is his story of the announcement. Matthew begins with a long genealogy, which no one ever reads, unfortunately, but it's intended to connect the book of Matthew with the Old Testament and show that Jesus was a part of that uh, line that began with uh, Abraham, the seed, was promised to Abraham he would bear the seed that would save the world and that seed was passed on from one generation to the next until it culminates in verse 16 in Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ you would expect the genealogy to read that Jacob was the father of Joseph and Joseph was the father of Jesus but it doesn't say that because Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus God was the father of Jesus. It simply it circumvents the, the birth of Jesus by saying that Jacob was the father of Joseph and Joseph was Mary's husband and, and Jesus was born of, of Mary and this is the one who is called Christ and here's this explicit reference again to the virgin birth. And this is how it all came about, Matthew says, verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You see, Mary had gone down to visit Elizabeth. She was with Elizabeth three months, and then she came back to Nazareth, and she reported to Joseph, apparently at this time, that she was pregnant. And uh, she told him that uh, God was the father, that she had been with no other man. And Joseph, of course, found this very difficult to handle because uh, he didn't believe in a virgin birth either. No one did in that culture. They weren't expecting Messiah to be born of a virgin. And uh, he was confused. 
But he was a righteous man. He was a good man. And so he decided instead of uh, calling the community to gather and gathering witnesses, as was the case, the culture, uh, the culture demanded, he would divorce her quietly, which meant that he would probably bear some shame and embarrassment throughout his life because it would never be fully clear why he had, he had divorced her, why he had put her away. You understand that in that culture, an engagement was just as binding as a marriage, and it required a divorce in order to, to sever it. And while they were not yet formally married, they were pledged to one another, and as good as married, though they didn't live together. And uh, Joseph knew that he would have to divorce her because he felt that she had been unfaithful to him. But because he was a righteous man, he didn't want to disgrace her. And uh, after he had considered this for a bit, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. That was a familiar name to Israelites. It's the name Joshua, the deliverer of Israel, who in type was the Savior who is to come. He was a, a symbol or a sign of uh, our Lord Jesus. And uh, uh, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, Emmanuel with us, El, is God. Which means, as Matthew interprets, God with us. You'll notice that the quote ends with the word Emmanuel. The phrase that follows, which means God with us, is Matthew's explanation of the virgin birth. And you say, well, uh, David, you're wrong. They knew that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child because Isaiah predicted it. Where Matthew tells us that this was uh, uh, this fulfilled or accomplished, filled to the full what Isaiah predicted. But uh, actually, Isaiah's prophecy is very obscure. Isaiah was... Uh, a prophet in the middle of the 8th century. He uh, uh, delivered a prophecy to Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, in which this uh, phrase is found. Ahaz uh, was fortifying the city of Jerusalem against an assault by Israel in the north. They were in the midst of a civil war, the north and the south, fighting. And uh, Ahaz, rather than turning to God for help, turned to the Assyrians. And... Uh, Hezekiah warned him, or Isaiah warned him, don't do that. Don't do that. Trust God. Don't count on your arms and your, your military might and your political and uh, alliances with these other countries. Trust, uh, trust God. He's going to take care of you. And then in order to assure Ahaz, because he was a bit shaky, he said, ask for a sign. Any sign will do. It can be as high as heaven or as low as the earth. Ask for any sign. And God will fortify your faith. And he'll prove his... His, uh, his faithfulness to you. And Isaiah, or Ahaz, wanted no part of, of, of God's promises. He very piously said, I, I don't want any sign, and went on fortifying fighting the city. And uh, Isaiah said to him, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, and this is the sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And before he knows the difference between good food and bad food, these two kings that you fear, these two kings up in the north, Pekah the king of Israel and Pekahiah the king of Syria, who were in an alliance against Judah in the south, these two kings will no longer be a threat. They'll be eradicated from the face of the earth. And uh, we say, well, that prophecy then had to be fulfilled in Ahaz's time. And it, and it was. It was. Isaiah delivered his prophecy in 734 B.C. We know that date. In 734 B.C., he promised Ahaz that a child would be born. And uh, in 722, the Assyrians destroyed the kingdom of Israel, sacked and burned the city of Samaria, and the two kings that Ahaz uh, feared were no longer a threat. Well, uh, what can we do with this word virgin? Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive. Who is this woman? Well, we think from history that the woman was Ahaz's wife, whose name was Abiyah. And Abiyah had a son. His name was Hezekiah. He was a good king. And he was the king who came to the throne that succeeded Ahaz. And before he was 12 years of age, the two kings that Ahaz feared were no longer a threat. But you say, this is a virgin. A virgin shall conceive. No, no, the the Hebrew word that Isaiah used is a very ambiguous word. It can either refer to a virgin or it can refer to a young woman of marriageable age. It's even used of the woman, uh, of the bride, of the groom in the Song of Solomon, clearly a married woman. It's, uh, It's a term that can have many different meanings. When Isaiah used the word, he was referring to Ahaz's child. the, The prediction is that Ahaz would have a son. And he did have a son. And before that son was 12 years of age, God's promises were proved. God proved himself faithful. Uh, But when Matthew quotes this passage, he quotes it uh, 734 years later, and he says, he uses the Greek word for virgin. There are several different words that could have been used, and he selected out of the Greek language the word that can only mean virgin, a young woman with no sexual experience. And so what Matthew is saying is that what happened back in the 8th century is simply, it was a sign, it was kind of a down payment, it was a picture of what God is going to do. And you see, people weren't expecting this. That's why Mary said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Had she understood Isaiah 7 to mean a virgin, she would have, she would have immediately known that she, how this would be accomplished. She didn't know. No one knew. God surprised the world. And he created something. He did something that had never been done before. He touched this young woman. And a new being came into the world. And this new being was God himself. That's what the virgin birth means. Out of all the explanations and descriptions that the theologians give us, the one that is most profound, the one that is most meaningful, the one that touches our hearts as no other explanation does, is the one that Matthew gives. What does it mean? It means Emmanuel. And then he explains so there will be no question what that, what that name means. God with us. That's what Christmas means. That's what we've forgotten, you see. It means God 
is with us. In the face of this infant child, we see the face of God. Remember when we were teaching through the parables and I pointed out that everything Jesus did was a manifestation of the character of God. Everything he did, everything he said, every move he made, every action that he took was a, was a way of manifesting the character of God. As Paul puts it in one of his letters, he is the visible image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. Look at the way he dealt with the hardship of life, with the poverty in which he lived, with the disappointments of life, the hard things that went on around him, the opposition that he experienced. Look at the way he treated women and children and orphans and the outcasts and the publicans and the sinners and the people that nobody else wanted to get next to. He ate and drank with them. He wanted to be with them because that's the way God is. And uh, what you see in this in this child is nothing new, you see. What Jesus did and what Jesus said throughout his whole life was nothing new. It was simply a, a manifestation, a revelation of what has always been true. And that is God's longing, his hunger, his yearning to get next to us, to be close to us, to be united to us. And in that sense, even Bethlehem is, is nothing new. And even the virgin birth is nothing new. It's simply God saying again, I want to get next to you. I want to be close to you. I love you that much that I'm willing to come and to experience the humiliation of being born in a stable and placed in a feed trough in order to get close to you, you see. That's what the Incarnation is all about. It's in that manifestation of God that we see the face of we see the face of Christ. Or in that manifestation of Christ rather that we see the face of God. Now you see that's what's missing from our Christmas uh uh, celebrations today. Uh, it's somehow it's highly significant that the, the little girl took her uh, her doll away. At first, uh, I wished that she had left it here, but then I, uh, as I thought about it, I thought there's something very significant about that because that's what's missing today. We don't see the infant anymore. And, and we know something is missing from Christmas, but we don't know what it is. We don't understand why we're so ha- unhappy and so unfulfilled and so unsatisfied. We expect so much out of this season. We look forward with such anticipation to the joy of this occasion and when we'll, we'll gather with our friends and loved ones and, and yet people don't come through for us and the occasion doesn't come through and, and, and there, we want something more. Is, is this all there is? We say there must be something more to this. When I was a child, I, I remember gathering around the Christmas tree and my father would distribute all the gifts and we'd take our time and go through them one at a time and everyone would look on and we'd open one gift after another. And, and then when it was all over, do you remember what would go through your head? I know what went through my head. I'd think, is this, is this all? Isn't there something more? And I'd look under the tree for just one more gift, you know, puppy in the back room or something that they were keeping until last. And then my father would say, that, that's it, kids, that's it, it's over. And 
when it's over, it's over. And you could you play with your things for a while, but you sense that there's there's something missing, something's not there. And uh, my recollections of Christmas Day is that there was a kind of a melancholy, sort of a sadness that would settle in, because there must be something more. And you know, I see that all through our community. I see a lot of unhappiness, a lot of sadness. People are busy buying gifts and they're thinking about receiving gifts and they're looking forward to family gatherings, but there's an enormous amount of unhappiness. Years ago, Sigmund Freud wrote a book entitled Civilization and Its Discontents. Not very well known. But in that book, he talked about how modern technology has supplied our society today with everything that we used to seek from the gods. Primitive men prayed for creature comforts, and those things have all been given to us. And yet we're not satisfied. We're still hungry for something more. And, but we don't know what it is, you see. And in fact, uh, Freud says at the end of his book, why are we so unhappy, raises that, that question. And uh, he himself has no answer for it. At least he had the courage to say, I don't know. I don't know why we're so unhappy. Well, I can tell you why we're so unhappy. I can tell you why Christmas never fulfills us. It's because nothing in this world will ever satisfy us except God. That's what we're made for. And everything else leaves us empty and unsatisfied and, and, uh, and, and yearning, wanting for something more. There is this discontent and longing that, that we can't quite pin down. We think uh, if we get an education, then we'll be happy. And we get an education, and we're not happy. And so we go to graduate school, and we'll be happy. So we go to graduate school, and, and we're not happy. We well, I get married, and I'll be happy. And we get married, and we're still not happy. And we think, well, if I have children, I'll be happy. And so we have children, and we're not happy. And so we think it's, uh, it's making a great deal of money or becoming powerful or influential. And we just go from one thing to the next, opening up all the presents that life gives to us, and we're never satisfied. We're unhappy to the end of our days because we've missed the one thing that we've been, been looking for all of our lives, which is God himself. And you see what this stable tells us is that God's looking for us as well. He took the initiative. He came all the way from heaven to be born in humility. We were worth more to him than his dignity. We were more, worth more to him than his glory and honor in heaven. We were worth more to him than his life. He gave up everything in order to just get next to us. That's all. I uh, was struck as we were singing the, uh, this hymn a moment ago. I didn't even... Notice it in the first service, but the second line of O Holy Night reads, The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your King before him, lowly bend. See, he understands our needs better than anyone could ever understand them because he became one with us. He was with us. And he took a form that no one could fear. 
You see, that's why the that's why the shepherd said to the angels, Fear not, fear not. Because to you in Bethlehem is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and you'll find him. He's a little baby lying in a feed trough. Who could be afraid of a baby? Who would shrink from a baby? Everybody loves a baby. They're drawn to babies. And and these shepherds went to the manger and they picked up our Lord Jesus in their rough hands and they held him and they hugged him. And they had no fear of him. He was God incarnate. Come to live among us. Come to love us as we've never been loved. 